So if you've been following along, we're, we're traveling through the book of Acts. We're into the, the very end of the second chapter. And, and uh, in this part, Peter is really closing his sermon. And something of what we're seeing is the birth of the church. You know, and it had me thinking that I, I, I remember back a few years, um, well, close, a little over a decade, my dad turned 80. He's still at an age where he, he had a number of friends still with us, and we did a, we did a big party. And so at that time, it was my job to, to put together a slideshow that we, that we could show people. And I contacted aunts and uncles and really got a, 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 a ton of great pictures. I mean, to see your dad, you know, 60 years previously in diapers is something no guy should miss. It's, <laughs> it puts it all in perspective. But that kind of started um, a little bit of an interest and, and I started gathering information about the family and we've even recently started cleaning out closets ourselves, digging through pictures. And if you've ever come across one of those services, this one we got is called iMemory. So they send you a box. In that box, you put all your old prints and videotapes that you haven't, you know, haven't come out of a box in decades and decades. Send it off to them. They digitize it, send it back to you, and you can watch it on TV or whatever venue you want. But it's a way to, to look back, to be remembered of where it all began. Remember your roots. And, and I think much of what is happening uh, or the value that we can get from looking at the book of Acts is this is the birth of the church. This is, this is our roots. This isn't just a story about an ancient people in a distant land. This is brothers and sisters in Christ. This is our family. And what Peter gives to us is, and, and the other apostles as, as the book goes along, is telling us our story and how God's church and our family began. So we pick up in Acts chapter 2, verse 32. We're going to read through verse 41. Why don't you stand with me and we'll read God's word together. Beginning at verse 32. Peter says, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this, that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, 
Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent, and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. You may be seated. So in these first few verses that we read, 32 to 35, it's almost as if Peter is the testifying attorney giving witness. And Peter says, among other things, he says, the one foreseen by David, this Jesus, the one foreseen by David. It says, this Jesus, who God had promised would sit on his throne and establish his kingdom forever. This Jesus, Peter has told us, God proved by mighty works and wonders and signs. And after having been crucified by lawless men, according to God's definite plan, this Jesus, God raised from the dead. This Jesus. They had only known him as, who knows what they knew him as, but they knew him as other than seeing his miracles, and he kept being reminded of this, isn't this Joseph's son? Isn't this simply the son of a carpenter? Peter declared earlier in verse 24, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Nothing could stop it. And Jesus said in John 10:18. Remember, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Peter says, Jesus has therefore been exalted to the right hand of God. He's been given the power and authority of God. In fact, by the power given to him, Jesus has poured out the Holy Spirit as he says, they have seen and heard in this day of Pentecost. So how do we see Jesus exalted? Well, first, they and we see Jesus ascended. And Peter again refers to it here. He ascended into heaven. And secondly, he sits at the right hand of God. And we talked about that position, the right hand of God. That is the place of authority, of power. And then Peter quotes King David from Psalm 110, here in verse 34 and 35, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. What was David foreseeing? The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. 
Ancient scholars had debated this over and over again. What could David have meant? The Lord said to my Lord. And what it is, it's a glimpse of the Trinity. And if you're familiar with Christian theology, we believe God is one. The Old Testament declared that over and over again. The Lord your God is one. But over and over again, we see the plurality of God represented. And Trinity, Christian uh, theology on the Trinity states that there is one God, but he's displayed in three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And this is a glimpse of the Trinity, one God in three persons, the Father speaking to the Son. And the disciples may not fully have fully formed a Trinitarian understanding of how Jesus, the man, can be God. But they believed it. They believed it. You remember Thomas, doubting Thomas, forever getting that title. He was the guy, he, he wasn't there when Jesus had stepped into the room earlier on. And when he heard the stories, his response was, I will not believe it until I put my fingers in his palms and put my hand in his side. And then graciously, days later, Jesus appears in the room with the disciples and he says, Thomas, see here. And Thomas, a beautiful response, drops to his knees probably saying, my Lord and my God. Or the thief on the cross. He certainly didn't have any developed Trinitarian theology, did he? But there he is, witnessing all these things, wit witnessing the righteousness of Christ, probably knowing about the acts, the miracles, the wonders and signs that Jesus had performed. And he says to him, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. This is the man on the cross being crucified, and he sees him as a reigning king the Lord, the Lord God. You know, and it's interesting, God often proves to our heart long before we fully understand it. And it's a lesson to not hesitate to respond to God. We don't always fully understand who God is or what he is doing. But we don't need to understand it all. Well, Peter moves from his summary of his sermon right into the conclusion. And you see it in verse 36. He says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Peter is saying there can be no doubt God has made Jesus Lord we see him, Lord, during his earthly ministry. Remember the scene in the boat, the, 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 the disciples and Jesus had been out on the lake. The storms came up. They were so heavy. Even seasoned fishermen were terrified. Wind waves were coming over the hull. They wake Jesus. Don't you care if we die? And he stands and he says, be at peace. 
and the winds and the seas stop immediately. And their response is, they were all amazed. I think I would be too. So that they questioned among themselves saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. Oh, I mixed up too. That was my verse for commanding unclean spirits. He did that too. Pardon me. Luke 8, 25 is where Jesus calms the waves. And in that one, they marveled as well, saying to one another, who then is this that commands even the, even the winds and water? They obey him. Well, he not only commands nature, we see him, Lord, as prophesied by David himself and established by God. And again, Peter here quoting David from Psalm 110, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand, the seat of all authority. We see Jesus himself embraces that he is Lord. Jesus did not shy away from the title of Lord. If you remember Jesus when he was turning the tables and he was questioning the Pharisees themselves in Matthew 22 saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, well, it's the son of David. It's got to be. And he said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And of course, his question is rhetorical. He knows they don't have an answer. Jesus knows David's psalm speaks of him. And their response is telling. And no one was able to answer him a word. Not, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. They would not accept what the scriptures were telling them. Well, we also see Jesus is Lord in his rule over all his enemies. The verse says, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. This is an interesting word study because you see this throughout the New Testament. This is almost a banner cry of the church. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 25, for he must reign meaning Jesus, until he has put all enemies under his feet. Or Hebrews 10, 12. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. And Paul again, in his second letter to the Corinthian church, chapter four, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And you know, Jesus' rule is the hope and the treasure of the church, is it not? 
I love these opening verses in Ephesians chapter 1. Having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. Jesus is Lord. We see over and over again the apostles confirming it. And Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Paul in Romans 1.4. Well, Peter, in his conclusion, he's not only telling us that Jesus is Lord, but he has been made both Lord and Christ. And the crowd must have asked to themselves, perhaps at this point, how did we not see it in the prophecies? How did we miss it? Perhaps they thought of Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. For us, a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government, and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Maybe they thought of that verse. Maybe they thought of Isaiah 61. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, in the opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. Certainly their, their minds went to Isaiah 53. Who has believed what he has heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he, has pierced, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. 
As Peter draws into his conclusion in identifying by proofs that God clearly displayed, I have no doubt, based particularly on, uh, on the response of the crowd at the end of this text, that the realization of God's many, many prophecies about the Christ were suddenly dots being connected in the crowd. This Jesus, who God has made, both Lord and Christ. And these words that Peter spoke must be ringing in their ears and you crucified him. Was it willful ignorance? Peter gives them that. In chapter 13, he says in another sermon, brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath. And you fulfilled them by condemning him. And here, Peter draws his sermon to to the conviction. Verse 37. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? You know, Listen to those words. They heard this. Now when they heard this. We have to first hear the message of the gospel before we can respond to it. And let's face it, the gospel begins with bad news. And we don't like bad news. It begins with our guilt. It begins with our accountability before God. The Apostle Paul, quoting Psalm 14 in his letter to the Romans, saying, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does God, no one does good, not even one. And in our culture, It's hard to hear any message, right? We live in a world of constant white noise. We crave continual, unending entertainment. We're forever speaking, never hearing. But Peter says, they heard this. They heard this. And... They were pierced by the truth. They were cut to the heart. This is what happens when the word of God gets through to the human heart. It pierces it. The writer of Hebrews puts it this way. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It cuts through our excuses. It cuts through our pretexts. 
It cuts through our self-vindications. Is it not ridiculous to think that God does not see us clearly for who we are? Jesus said in John 2.25 that he does not need to be told anything about man, for he himself knows what is in the heart of man. Jesus knows everything about us. What happens when the truth pierces the human heart? You know, it's, it's not always good. We don't always, the world doesn't always respond to God's word well. You can jump forward. There's a couple scenes I think we need to look at. You can jump forward to Acts 5, 27, 33. And if you remember this scene, Peter and John are on Solomon's portico. They've been preaching. They've been warned about it. And it says, and when they had brought them, meaning those who had arrested them, they set them before the council and the high priest questioned them saying, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet, here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Going on. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. So initially, they, they do not want to hear this message. And in fact, their response in verse 33 is when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. And if you remember a little bit farther, one, two chapters forward, the story of Stephen. Stephen so elegantly stood before the crowd and spoke to them unreservedly about the nation's faith, faithlessness in the history of the nation. And Stephen says in Acts 7, 52, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. And hear their response. And now when they heard these things, they were enraged. And they ground their teeth at him. And in verse 57, they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. This is the extreme, but frankly, this is how we most often respond to the truth about ourselves. Ourselves. 
We respond with anger. We respond with rage. And in this case, they responded with murder. Back in Acts 2, their response to Peter is one of brokenness and a cry for help. Brothers, what shall we do? The truth of what they had done led them to despair and notice they saw no solution within themselves. And here's the question for us. Where do we go first when we feel the despair of our own sin? Do we just try harder? Do we come up with long justifications? Do we work on our self-esteem, perhaps? Do we take a pill or take a drink to alter our perception? Or do we cry out to God? Listen to David from Psalm 51 when Nathan the prophet confronted him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God. My transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Then these words. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Friend, have you ever offered to God heart broken over your sin? Have you ever felt so fallen and racked by sin that God could never receive you? David says, a broken and contrite heart God will never reject. That is a sacrifice that is pleasing to God. And why is it pleasing to God? It's pleasing to God because it leads you to God's invitation. And in verses 38 through 40 of chapter 2, that's what Peter does. He gives us the invitation of the gospel. And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are afar off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received this word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Praise God. Notice, Peter's invitation is not, God loves you, God has a good plan for your life. Here in Peter's gospel invitation, he tells us what we need. He says, one, repent. It means to change your mind regarding sin. It means, I recognize I'm wrong and God is right. For the crowd on Pentecost, repent meant repent of their rejection of Jesus Christ and accept that he is Lord and Christ. Embrace him with faith as Messiah and Savior. And secondly, Peter says, we are to be baptized. Having believed on Jesus, this certainly means 
following through with the public act of baptism by submersion. But I believe, firstly, Peter means here that having put their faith in Jesus as Savior and Lord, the result is cleansing, a washing away of sins. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And finally, we can say they received his word, it says. We can't miss those little words. They received his word. And that word received, it's not like FedEx. I received the package, right? It means they, they welcomed it. They welcomed the word Peter was sharing with them. They received it gladly. They embraced it wholeheartedly. And brothers and sisters in Christ, when we put our faith in the Lord, we must wholeheartedly embrace the whole word of God. Is Jesus your Savior and Lord? So those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And that, my friends, is the birth of the church. It began with Peter. And again, we, we, we touched on this last week. We've been in this for six weeks, I think. We're, lo we're looking at something that probably took place in five minutes. And they saw all the events of Pentecost, the power of the Holy Spirit poured out upon the disciples. And then Peter's testimony of what all these signs meant, giving witness to who Jesus is. This is the birth of the church. And is where all who claim Christ find their roots. It is where Peter first fulfilled his commission given to him by Jesus. This from Luke 24, just prior to Christ's ascension, Jesus is with the disciples and he says, thus, is it, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witness of these things. Let's pray. Father, we, we give you glory even as we look at these events that took place so many years ago. But to hear and witness 3,000 souls being saved, 3,000 souls responding to the gospel. And Father, we could even say in another sense, there were 3,000 that heard there were perhaps many thousands more 
that did not hear. Perhaps many thousands more that heard but could not respond with anything but rage and offense. Father, we thank you for our salvation. Your scripture tells us that who were saved were all those who called to yourself. And we acknowledge that through the power of your Holy Spirit, you have raised people who are spiritually dead. We have no ability to climb out of the grave. But by the power of your Holy Spirit, which you poured out beginning on Pentecost, you give life to men and women. And Father, you have so mercifully given us people who call you Lord. You have given us your spirit and new life in Christ in spite of our sin and rebellion against you. Your word tells us that you loved us while we were still enemies. Father, we thank you so much for this. We thank you for your love that you sent in Christ. Father, I want to pray for anyone here that doesn't know you as Lord in Christ. Perhaps they have never heard the gospel message. And perhaps much of this they don't understand. I would say to that person, you don't need to. There's, there's plenty of time for that. And Jesus promised his Holy Spirit that he would continue to unfold his truths to us. But if the Holy Spirit is speaking to you now and you recognize you have sinned against your creator God who is perfect, holy, and righteous, that is his standard. He calls you to him. And the only way is through his son, Jesus Christ, who hung on a cross, willingly bled and died, paying the debt you and I had before God, making the way. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. And I pray today you will invite him into your life. Respond to his call as Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Would you stand? Looking for a verse. Had one in mind.
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. May you have a blessed week in the Lord. May you be led by his spirit and proclaim his truth. You are released. Thank you.